beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now we come and thank you for these few moments. Uh, Lord, what a, what a wonderful and powerful phrase. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Lord, I pray that if we are here this morning and we know that, we profess that as our hope, that hope would be made even more real to us this day. But Father, I pray if there are those here who do not know that particular hope, that today would indeed be the day of salvation. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years and a whole different denomination ago, I was uh, talking with a wise older deacon in our church about some folks who were particularly unhappy with the pastor. Since I was the pastor, the conversation was of particular interest to me. It's okay, pastor, he assured me. Some of these folks would be upset if Billy Graham was their pastor. Now at the time, his statement struck me as being both true but also particularly unfair. However, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that it's just part of the deal. Since then, I've also read, reread, and preached through 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians. And I've come to realize that if the mighty apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and the greatest theologian, the man who wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else, and it's not even close. If Paul had to defend his ministry from naysayers, then why should a run-of-the-mill local church pastor be any different? The trick, my friend Kent Hughes liked to say, is to make sure that your approach to ministry is biblically defensible. It's not enough that you can defend it. Rather, is your approach and is the way you're doing ministry biblically defensible? Well, in our text for this morning, Paul is defending his ministry. And in doing so, he gives us a thumbnail sketch about the kind of ministry that is biblically defensible. Now, on page five in your, in your bulletin, you'll see an outline for our time together this morning. And you see there at the top, the big idea. The big idea in one sentence is what the sermon is about. By the way, let me just note, the big idea this week is not particularly good. It's a little flimsy. 
But here it is. Paul expounds the nature of gospel ministry. Paul expounds the nature of gospel ministry. The Apostle Paul, we know from the book of Acts and then from reading some of the sort of autobiographical sections of his letters to different churches, uh, Paul was a rabbi who was classically trained in the school of Gamaliel. Now, because that's true, whenever Paul writes, Paul is making an argument. There is something particular that he's trying to communicate. Sometimes he's expressing, as it is with the Philippians, he's expressing a particular kind of gratitude because they have a a particular kind of gospel fellowship. And that gospel fellowship brings he as their church planter and they as believers great joy. Sometimes, however, in the case of the Galatians and in the case of uh, his letters to the church in Corinth, Paul has to defend the fact that he's particularly sort of even breathing air. Paul, how in the world could you think this is how ministry is supposed to go? But in this particular text, Paul is making an argument. Now, we don't do so good with arguments. We do very well with sound bites. We do very well with spin. We're all up in how it is that people feel at any given particular moment. But for someone to say, A plus B equals C, or for someone to make a reasoned and sustained argument, well, that's weird to us now. We're not quite sure what to do with it. And so this morning, we want to start at the end. We want to start with Paul's summation of all that he has been saying, and then we want to reverse engineer our understanding of Paul's presentation of what good and faithful gospel ministry looks like. And so in verse 29, Paul says, For this I toil. What this? Well, verse 24 to 28, that's the this. Everything that's come before, Paul says, It's for this that I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So Paul understands something very crucial. And that is that the very nature of gospel ministry is that it isn't the minister's ministry, but rather it's God working in and through them. Paul tells the church in Colossae that he's struggling with all of God's energy and that God is powerfully working within him. So in other words, this is not something that God is, this is not something that Paul is doing. Rather, this is something that God is doing. Paul wants us to understand that he did not call himself into ministry and he cannot continue in his own power and in his own strength within the ministry. Now friends, in talking about what he's doing and in in ascribing both the origin and the ongoing power of his ministry to God himself. The Apostle Paul is mirroring the call of the prophets. We heard that in Jeremiah, didn't we? God says, hey, Jeremiah, I have a word I want you to speak. We're paraphrasing now. And Jeremiah says, hey, 
I'm just a kid. I don't know how to speak. And God says, eh, no, 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 don't say that. Because I'm going to put my words in your mouth. It's interesting, isn't it? When God calls Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, there's that wonderful text that we cite all the time in uh, missionary commissioning services. Uh, who will I send and who will go for us? And Jer or, excuse me, Isaiah declares, here am I, God, send me. And the problem is that's usually where we stop reading. But God goes on and says to him, hey, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to send you. You're going to preach, but they're not going to hear. You're going to explain, but they're not going to listen. Because if they listened and if they understood, then they would turn and they, then I would have to forgive them. And your word is a word of judgment. Paul is here reminding us that the kind of ministry that he has in mind is dependent upon both God's call, but also God's continuing energy and God's continuing strengthening of those whom he calls. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but there is a, a really a distressing uh, very well done, but very distressing series of podcasts called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if you're a podcast person, I would really encourage that you listen to them. Uh, and one of the things that uh, there were a ton of lessons that I walked away with having listened to that podcast. But one of them was uh, you're on really, really thin ice whenever a pastor or minister starts speaking in terms of my ministry. That just gets really, really dangerous. Or if a pastor or minister starts speaking in terms of my church. I hope that if I ever say in your hearing my ministry, that you will pull me aside and lovingly but firmly remind me it's not my ministry. I did not call myself to this particular work. I fought against it, but I never called myself to ministry. And I can't continue to do ministry in my own strength. But like Paul, I need to struggle with the energy that he provides as he works within me. Without God's energy, without God's power, without God's calling, I'm simply fooling myself. Secondly, we see that Paul needs God's energy. He needs God's strength. He needs God to be at work because his calling is to suffer. Look at verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, let's let that first phrase just sort of sink in. I rejoice in my sufferings. Not, I tolerate my sufferings. Not, I loathe my sufferings. Not, as most of us would try to say, I am avoiding my sufferings and wondering if God is not asleep on the wheel at the wheel because I am suffering. No, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings 
for their sake. And then he continues with this very striking phrase in which he says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, he just got done telling us in the previous section that Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation. In fact, he told us in verse 22 of Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we're left going, Paul, what do you mean what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You just got done telling us there's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's nothing lacking in Christ's death. We have been reconciled to God the Father through the body, through Christ's body of flesh, through his death. What do you mean what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, this is an instance in which uh, reading the Greek literally is probably helpful. Because it literally means, uh, what are the leftovers in Christ's afflictions? Not lacking in the sense that somehow Jesus' death was not sufficient. That the passion and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ somehow needs something added to it. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that when Jesus told his disciples hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if they persecuted me, so also they're going to persecute you. In other words, those are the leftovers. If the world hates Jesus, then the world will also hate the followers of Jesus. See, friends, this is not a question of sufficiency. Rather, this is a question of authenticity. One of my great heroes in faith is a German pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was martyred in the final, the closing days of uh, World War II by personal command from uh, Adolf Hitler to have him shot in the Flossenburg concentration camp. It was literally two days before the Allies liberated the camp. And the really amazing thing about Bonhoeffer's story is because uh, he was well-educated and because he was well-connected, uh, when the war broke out, he was actually not in Germany. He was serving an international church in England. Prior to that, he had spent a year in the States. He had spent a year in New York City studying at Union Theological Seminary. Bonhoeffer had literally a get-out-of-jail-free card. He could have stayed outside of Germany for the entire war, but he didn't. And when someone asked him, Dietrich, why did you come back? Here's what he said. He said, listen, I can't be a part of the rebuilding of the church if I'm not a part of the suffering of the church. I can't be a part of the rebuilding of the church if I'm not a part of the suffering of the church. Bonhoeffer understood Jesus' words. He understood what Paul was saying to us. 
that there are leftovers in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And being called to ministry means that you are called to suffer. Thirdly, Paul makes it clear that his calling is to be a servant of the word. His calling is to be a servant of the word. In verse 25, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, Paul begins by letting us know and by letting his readers know that he is a steward. He's not the owner. He's not the master. And that God has called him to serve his people by means of serving the word. Likewise, serving the word means that he's going to serve the people. The two things must necessarily go together. And as such, Paul is not the master of the message, but rather he is a steward. Paul is not the owner of the church, rather he is a steward of that which God has created, that which God has gifted. It's not his message. It's not his church. He is a steward. Now again, here the Greek is helpful to us because that phrase that gets translated according to the stewardship from God is literally according to the economy of God. According to the economy of God. Paul understands himself to be a servant a steward of the word. He's not its master. He's not its owner. He's a steward. One of the really helpful uh, diagrams that is drawn in, in Simeon Trust workshops and in uh, Simeon Trust training is uh, we will draw a crown and we will draw a text. And we will say that every time uh, you, a preacher stands up to preach or every time a Bible teacher stands up to teach the Bible or a woman is going to uh, lead a, a Bible study or however it is that we understand the, the teaching, the public ministry of God's word to happen. Each and every time there is a decision, a conscious decision that has to be made about who is wearing the crown. Either I'm king or the text is king. And since the text is God's revelation of himself, if the text is king, then necessarily the triune God will be the king. It's one thing for me to sit and go, well, what do I want to tell my people this week? Well, that's foolish. And it's stupid. And quite honestly, you shouldn't care what it is that I want to tell you. You should, however, as God's people, care greatly what it is that God has to say to us in the living of these days. Verse 26, then, he's uh, taking dead aim at what's going on in the church. You may recall that we said in Colossae there are a group of false teachers who have started, and they are teaching an early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism among other things, said, hey, there's all this higher knowledge that's out there. There's all of this mystery and the only way that you get to know the mystery is 
you have to be sort of a part of the Illuminati. You have to be a part of the, the chosen few because the chosen few are given this special revelation from God. They get this special knowledge and they alone know and understand the mystery. And Paul says, hey, you want to talk about mystery? Well, here it is. Let me tell you about the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul's saying, listen, you don't have to be a part of the Illuminati. No, you have to be a part of the people of God. You have to be a part of those who have been made holy, as he told us in verse 22, who have been reconciled by Christ in his body of flesh by his death. If that's you, if you're one of his saints, then whatever mystery you want to talk about, which was hidden for ages, has now been made known to you. It's been revealed to you. This is not about a mystery religion. No, this is about the fact that what we see dimly in the Old Testament comes into crystal clarity in the new, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That all of the covenant promises that God makes to us in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. And so that mystery has been revealed. Now we don't talk that way much anymore. But I grew up in a tradition that put an emphasis on what they called the deeper Christian life. And it was fine that you were uh, born again, and that was wonderful. You needed to be born again. But what you really needed to be uh, was you really needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because it was only if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit then that you could, uh, you could enjoy and appreciate and actually experience this deeper Christian life life. But as we're going to see, as Paul is going to make clear in verse 27, and again in verse 28, there's not a deeper Christian life available only to those who are fortunate enough to have been baptized in the Spirit. No, look at verse 27. He says to them, namely to his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Paul has already said that the ministry that God has given him is to make the word of God fully known. And where the word of God is fully known, then the Lord Jesus Christ will be fully known. And he sums it all up for us in this wonderful phrase, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you're saying, well, pastor, how is that a mystery? It's a mystery. Because in that phrase, we have both an experience of the now, but also an experience of not yet. We have that hope now, but we don't yet fully uh, experience what is ours yet to come. And you're saying, wait, that, that doesn't make any sense. Well, think of it this way. Imagine, if you would, uh, that we were undergoing a typical Nebraska winter. I think I saw on my phone this morning, it's supposed to get up to something like 58 degrees, uh, which for February 20th is fairly unheard of in the state of Nebraska. Imagine instead 
that you lived in Minnesota where it's like the planet Hoth six months out of a year. Uh, that's kind of what we generally tend to experience in these months. So imagine it's your typical Nebraska winter and you're sort of dodging funky brownish nasty looking snow piles and things and it's cold and you from the minute you get up in the morning till you go to bed at night you just feel like you can't get warm well imagine if in the midst of that kind of winter you knew and you knew it because you had the tickets they were paid for you could go to the website and see it that you had tickets for a week and i don't mean five days i mean six days and seven nights you were going to get to go to an all-inclusive resort in Cancun. And the weather was going to be nice. Some of you can imagine this because I know that's where you're going. And imagine that you now are facing that kind of weather. Knowing, hey, today is February 20th, but on March 1st, we get on a plane and we are going to Cancun. Is there hope in that? Does that help offset the joys of winter in Nebraska? It does. But at the same time, that hope and that understanding, that knowing that I have tickets and on March 1st I'm leaving is not at all the same thing as actually sitting on the beach feeling the sun with whatever beverage of choice you have seated next to you. That's why Paul says it's a mystery. Do we have the hope of Christ in you, the hope of glory? Yes. Do we fully experience that glory now? No. And friends, that's why it's a mystery. Now we know it partially, but there's coming a day in which we will know it fully. It's interesting, isn't it? In this whole section, uh, the Apostle Paul uses that word fully over and over again. That the word of God would be fully known. And now he tells us that he wants everyone to be mature. That they would be, uh, they, they would be fully mature. In fact, he says in verse 28, Him, namely Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So his last uh, understanding of what it means to be a servant of the Word is he's doing it not so that God's people would do well playing Bible trivia. Not so that they would have an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of what the Bible has to say on certain things or that they would be doctrinally very astute. No, his goal is this. That in proclaiming Jesus, in warning everyone, and in teaching everyone with all wisdom, you would grow then into maturity in Christ. And again, this is not simply for the Illuminati. This is not for somehow uh, this spiritual elite. No, this is for everyone. He warns everyone. He teaches everyone. He does it with all wisdom. Why? 
so that he may present everyone mature in Christ. Friends, we are all in different places in our walk with Jesus. We are all in different places in our understanding of the gospel and in the way in which we see the gospel made clear and made relevant in our lives on a day-to-day basis. But the goal for all of us, Paul says, is the same. That one day we will stand before God and we will be presented mature in Christ. Paul says then, this is why I'm toiling. This is why I'm struggling. This is why I'm suffering. And this is why I need God to powerfully work within me. In a few moments, as we come to the table, we are going to be reminded of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. The table will proclaim to us in ways that we can feel and smell and taste the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The table also speaks to us, though, of the mystery of our hope in Christ. We can come now to this little table and have bread and wine and understand that we are partaking of the Lord Jesus Christ spiritually, but it points us to a table that is yet to come. It points us to a table It will be part of the greatest wedding feast the cosmos has ever known. So as we come to the table and as we think about the hope that the table represents for the people of God, we understand there is a now and a not yet to that table as well. Paul says this is what we proclaim, an order that God's people may be fully mature. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us because I think at times we have a very me-centered, very consumer-centered, very provider of social goods and services-centered approach to what it is that ministers are supposed to be doing. But Father, the Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear for us what it is that those who are called to ministry are to be about. We make the word of God fully known that the people of God may be fully mature. That's the goal. We labor in the word for the benefit of the people, understanding that it's the word of God that creates the people of God. Father, we bless you this morning for the hope that is ours in the gospel. And we pray that even as uh, that hope helps us endure here and now, that, Father, our imaginations and, uh, Father, all that we are would be captured by this notion of the glory that is yet to come. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.